Welcome back to the Send 938 Missions Podcast, a ministry of Baptist Pin Missions designed to encourage, equip, and inspire the next generation of missionary servants and the churches who will send them. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, Administrator for North American, Asian, and South Pacific Ministries. And in this, the first episode of the Send 938 Missions Podcast for the year 2024, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I uh, don't have anyone in the, the studio today for an interview, don't have anyone joining me on Zoom. Uh, not going to deal with any uh, missions history or a specific topic. Rather, I want to approach this as a, a bit of a challenge to our listening audience for the new year. It's this time of year that uh, we're often thinking in terms of New Year's resolutions. And uh, listen, I, I know as well as anybody that it takes a lot of discipline to start a new diet every Monday. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, and I'm not a real big fan of New Year's resolutions because I usually end up giving them up for Lent. But well, what I do want to deal with here today is an understanding of the commission or call that is ours, universally speaking, across the body of Christ to engage the world around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. This this podcast is named after Matthew 9.38, where we are there encouraged to pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest field. We would be, in a, in a missiological sense, we would be very familiar with Matthew 28 and the Great Commission to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them to observe or obey everything that Christ has commanded but what I want to do here is challenge your thinking about the the eternal plan of redemption that has been Christ's and the things that he has both done and purposed in bringing the nations to himself. And to that end, I want to, I want to draw our attention to Psalm 96. I was at a missions conference this past fall, and the theme of the conference was Show Us Your Glory from Exodus 33:18. It's there that Moses, standing on the mountain, makes an appeal to God, an interesting appeal to God. It's not as if he was making this declaration, show me your glory, uh, with an interest uh, similar to what someone might have if they approached a celebrity and asked for a signature. Can I, can I have something to memorialize this or to remember you by? Note, Moses' plea with God, show me your glory, which God did in a, in a veiled fashion. And by the way, uh, a demonstration of his glory that, that forever changed Moses. What Moses was desiring there was not... Uh, a, a moment that he could brag about or celebrate later. He was not looking for a unique experience that no one else would ever have. Now, what Moses was looking for was nearness to God, availed through a knowledge of God that was deeper and better than he had in the moment that he asked for this. Because it is knowledge of God that brings us near to God. The better we know him, the closer we are to him. This is true of of every relationship, both human and divine, uh, it, it is it is true then that when we know someone better, we are closer to that person. And in that closeness, we can better serve them. And Psalm 96 has this combined um, appreciation for the glory of God known to man and the exercise of man's responsible service to God. There are a number of passages that probably could be identified as the Old Testament Great Commission. But Psalm 96, I think, really fits that identification. It's a passage of Scripture that details the call of God upon his people towards the nations, particularly the the unbelieving nations around them. And Psalm 96 is, is, um, is typically understood simply to be a psalm of praise or psalm of worship. Uh, It is 
It's recorded for us uh, elsewhere in Scripture as a, as a psalm given on the occasion of the ark being returned to Israel, David putting it in a tent to be held until the temple could be constructed. David gives this, this psalm, this song, to the Levitical singers, and they sing it on the occasion of the return of the ark. And the text is delineated into three separate sections um, in, a, in a literary presentation, as if we, we could easily say these are the three choruses of this song, marked by the threefold repetition of the words sing, 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 and then give, 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 and then let, let, let. It begins in verse 1, Psalm 96. So sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. John Piper, in what I think is one of the finest books written on missions to date, Let the Nations Be Glad, makes this assertion, and I, th- I think it accurate here, makes the assertion that missions exists because worship doesn't. If all of creation worshipped God and gave to him the glory and honor and praise that he is due as creation was designed to do, then the the role of missions would be mute. There there would be no purpose in it. There would be no cause for it. But because there are those who do not worship God, God calls them to worship of him through a relationship that is established by the grace of God through repentant faith. And so we have this call to bring to God more disciples who will worship him. And verse 1 of Psalm 96 begins with this, sing a new song. It's, it's indicative of Revelation 5, 9 and 10, where the elders sang a new song about the worthiness of Christ. You see, anytime we, anytime we see the, the reference to a new song in Scripture, we ought to be thinking in terms of a messianic or salvific reference to this. Because it is the task of the people of God, as directed in verse 3, to proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. That word proclaim in the in the Septuagint is the same Greek word that is used in the New Testament that we translate as evangelize. It is a representation not just of telling forth, but purposefully telling forth with a call to action. We are proclaiming the good news of his salvation. We are not simply standing on a street corner holding a sign saying, without Christ, you're all headed to hell. What we're doing is proclaiming the excellencies of Christ as we're called to do in Scripture, the good news of his salvation, the wonderful news that though we are sinners and in need of a Savior, that Savior is known to us. He is God the Son, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who left the glory that was his with the Father before his incarnation, stepped into time and space, lived as a man, both sinlessly and perfectly, so that he could die substitutionally, suffering the outpouring of the the wrath of God, which is justified against sinners like you and me, so that he bore God's wrath in our place, dying the death that we deserved, having lived the life that we could not live. And the evidence of the sufficiency, the singular sufficiency and necessity of this type of sacrifice is seen in the resurrection. If Christ were not resurrected, there would be no demonstration of his victory over sin. But because death is the consequence of sin and Christ defeated death, we believe and trust he has also defeated sin. This proclaiming the good news of of his salvation from day to day indicates an ongoing necessary task. It's not sufficient to do this once. It's not sufficient to say, I've led one person to the Lord. My responsibility is fulfilled. 
The day-to-day indication here in verse 2 demands an ongoing giving of attention to this task whereby we declare his glory among the nations. And to declare the glory of God, I would submit to you today, demands that we, de- that we proclaim Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that the word became flesh, and we saw as it was the glory of the only begotten of the Father. It is Jesus Christ who demonstrates in human form and flesh the glory of God, God himself made visible to man. To declare his glory among the nations, his wonders amongst all peoples, is not simply to proclaim him as creator, but that is where David goes next. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. That is to say they are worthless, they are useless, they are made by the hands that God made. They are invented in the minds of men that God created. They are less than the human form that fashioned them. But, verse 5, the Lord made the heavens. I think it's interesting here, and worth just a, a momentary pause to consider this, that oftentimes in a world when we stand before an unredeemed populace and we proclaim the excellencies of Christ, calling sinners to repentant faith in Christ, we will be challenged by those who are determined in their rebellion, asking questions of believers like, if God is in fact all good, omnibenevolent, how is it that evil exists in the world? It's a philosophical question that's posited most uh, regularly simply as the problem of evil. How do we reconcile this? If God is omnibenevolent, how is it that evil exists and, I would say, indeed persists in this world? And I'm going to suggest to you that part of the answer to that question demands an appreciation for the glory that is revealed, the glory of God that is revealed through his redemptive work in his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. So to sum that up differently, if we had only known God as creator, he would not have received as much glory as he does as both creator and savior. And so I I draw our attention back to where I began with Exodus 33, 18. Moses cried out, show me your glory. Not so that he could say, I saw it. I saw him. I have witnessed the glory of God, but so that he could say, I am nearer to God. I know him better. I can serve him better as the leader of his people. In Psalm 96, verses 1 through 6, we see the glory of God as both creator and savior. Seeing the glory of God as creator and savior should compel us to the activity that we're directed to in verse 2, the activity of all of God's people. See, the Great Commission for the New Testament was not a new charge for the church to suddenly begin reaching into the nations. One of the most famous and well-known stories in Scripture, even outside of of a believing audience, is the story of Jonah and the great fish, Jonah and the whale. That was God sending one of his chosen people to an unredeemed people in a foreign nation to call them to repentance. The story of God redeeming mankind is not new in the Great Commission era. And it is a reminder to us that, in fact, as verse 4 says, the Lord is great, and he is greatly to be praised, not simply because of what he has done, but because of who he is. He is a savior who saves. He is a creator who created. But if he had done none of it, he would still be worthy of all the praise because he is still who he is. He's worthy of praise. He is greatly to be praised. Verse 7, Give to the Lord, O families of the people. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his court. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. 
The world is also firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. This directive to give to the Lord, O families of the earth, give to the Lord glory and strength, give to the Lord the glory due his name, is not a call for us to render to God something that he lacks apart from us giving it to him. Rather, this is a call for us to recognize and and acknowledge God for who he is and for what he has done. And once more, the indication is that this call is 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 the indication is that this call extends beyond the people of God who are God's people today. Verse 7, O families of the peoples. There are some who would say this is a reference to the various families and the tribes of the people of Israel. I think it's pretty obvious from the rest of the chapter that this is a reference to all peoples. The whole psalm is about the entirety of humanity being called by the people of God to a place of of reconciliation with God, where they can lift their voices in praise because of who he is and because of what he's done, where they can acknowledge in a kind of responsible, reasonable service who uh, who he is as their sovereign. And that really is what's indicated there in the end of verse 8 when, it, when we're told to bring an offering and come to his court. This is the behavior. This is an invitation to the behavior of a subject towards their sovereign. And here's the thing that we must understand about the sovereignty of God. It's often pigeonholed into a, into merely a conversation about the sovereignty of God in the redemption of mankind. But the sovereignty of God extends well beyond the matter of redemption. And this must be true. Either God is sovereign over everything or God is sovereign over nothing. There is no in-between. There is no occasion where we say, well, he is sovereign enough to have directed the affairs of this occurrence, but over here it seems things really got out of hand for him and he didn't seem to be working in that arena. No, God, as the creator and savior, remains sovereign over everything. It's the kind of confidence in this knowledge that allows us to face what the world might consider incredible tragedy and confidently, quietly affirm God remains on the throne. Proclaim amongst the nations, verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Nothing that God has determined can be undone by anyone or anything because he is the sovereign savior and creator. But in addition to these, he's also the judge. And that's where the end of verse 10 introduces the last portion of the chapter beginning in verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Let all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord for he is coming for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and peoples with his truth. In Acts 17, this time of ignorance that's referred to there, the Lord has overlooked and is now calling upon all men everywhere to repent because he is coming to judge the world with righteousness. You see, it is his righteous standard against which we will all be judged. The wonder is that is not that what we have done or what we have failed to do doesn't matter. The wonder is that God's righteousness through the sacrifice of his son, our Savior Jesus Christ, covers all of our sin. But it is still the standard of his righteousness that matters. So when God looks for the comparison between the righteousness of his son and 
his people. He sees the righteousness of his son applied to his people. And against the unbelieving world, in comparison to the righteousness of Christ, there is only that which is damnable. He is coming to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Now, this is not God using the modern language of my truth, your truth, our truth, his truth. Truth is not subjective. It is objective. His truth is simply a reference to the truth that is known because he has produced it. He is the source of all truth. He is the author of all truth. So against the standards of truth, which is his, and righteousness, which is his, he is coming. He is coming. The twofold repetition there in the beginning of verse 13, it's not a scribal error. It is a purposeful emphasis of the reality of his coming judgment. And so verse 11, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar in all its fullness, let the field be joyful. These are not permissive lets, as in, you may go, I am letting you go. But this is a cry, let this be. This This is an appeal for what we know to be coming, to come and actually happen. This is the kind of response, the heavens rejoicing, the earth being glad, the sea roaring, the field being joyful. It's the kind of response that is the result of the work of God as demonstrated in Romans chapter 8, as we see the, all of creation groaning now, awaiting this moment of renewal when all things will be made new and made right. It is indicative of the work of the Son of God, our Savior, Creator, and, and Sustainer, the Sovereign of the universe in his work in the kingdom. Let it be. Sing, sing, sing. Give, give, give. Let, let, let. You see, in these threefold declarations, we see the glory of God as creator and savior. We see the glory of God as the sovereign over the entire universe, particularly your life and mine. And we see the glory of God as judge. In fact, the only just judge. It ought to be a great comfort to our hearts that the one who always judges rightly is the judge upon which the declaration of our eternity stands. He can make no mistakes. He always does what is right. And he is coming. You see, I said this earlier, but it should motivate us when we see God as creator and savior to do what verse 2 tells us to do, to proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day and his glory amongst the nations. But when we see him as creator and savior and sovereign and judge, all connected in one text, how can we possibly walk away from an engagement in the text of God's word like this and be anything other than motivated in this coming year to be engaged faithfully in the task of proclaiming the good news of his salvation from day to day and his glory among the nations? I would suggest to you that it is impossible to proclaim the glory of God without describing, defining, and informing the unredeemed masses of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. God the Son, the Son of God, our sovereign creator and savior, the coming judge. As you look forward to the new year, may Psalm 96 be to you just a reminder of what God has called you to do, what he's asked you to do, what he expects you to do in light 
of a knowledge of him as creator, savior, sovereign, and judge that is known as we see the glory of God in his work as creator, savior, sovereign, and judge. Lord, show us your glory so that we might proclaim it to all people.